So, what is, uh, what's worse than listening to a preacher? Listening to three preachers. Exactly right. Uh, we've been thinking this week, you know, how many preachers does it take to change a light bulb? All these kinds of themes have been uh, going around the office. So let me try and explain exactly what's going on here. It's a year ago now, in fact, exactly a year ago since we introduced Paul May to the congregation. It was Labor Day 2015. Uh, Paul and his wife Megan arrived with their kids as our next church planter to come on staff with us for a year before going out to plant a church from here. Now, on on the day that I introduced them, I, I asked you this question. I said, what is it that makes a church old? What is it that makes a church old? old. You know, everywhere you look, it seems that we see churches that are kind of getting old and churches that are are dying. Churches that aren't having an influence on our culture anymore. Churches that aren't that city on a hill that would be alluring to those who are far from God. We see churches getting old and and die everywhere we look. And, And what is it that makes that happen? Why do churches become old? Is it the age of their institution, the age of their facility perhaps? Is it the age of the congregation maybe? Or, or perhaps it's age of the senior pastor? You know, are, are these the things that make a church old? Uh, no, these aren't the things that make a church old, nor are they the things that make a church young. Uh, rather, we suggest that a church becomes old when it loses its outward face. A church becomes old when it loses its evangelistic drive, when it loses its missionary zeal. In other words, a church becomes old when it forgets why Jesus created the church in the first place, which was absolutely for the glory of God, and of course, for the welfare of those who follow Christ. But thirdly, and so importantly, for the welfare of those who don't yet follow Christ. Christ created the church as the primary vehicle through which the nations would be reached. The primary vehicle through which those who are far from God would be brought near. And this is why he said to his very first disciples, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Isn't that a great start? It's a great start. Go therefore. Go. All authority has been given to me, so don't sit around waiting for me to do something. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, so you go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he gives us the promise, and lo, I'm with you always, till the very end of the age. To the church, to, to us, sitting here, to you and those beside you in the pews, has been this, given this great privilege of taking the gospel to those who don't yet know it, that they might find salvation for eternity and hope for time today. A great and glorious privilege that is ours in the gospel. Now, if that's what keeps a church young, having this outward-facing heartbeat, we now see why so many churches become old. Because so many churches struggle to maintain this outward face. They lose this evangelistic drive. They lose their missionary zeal. Now, generally, churches don't intend for this to happen. You know, nobody drew up in their strategic plan. We will stop trying to reach new people, get old and die, right? You know, it's not like no one plans to do this. It just happens subtly, slowly. Often at first, because the church becomes a kind of, um, a kind of holy huddle, right? where 
We can take refuge from the world in our, in our sanctuary. And over time, we suddenly subtly become kind of prideful that we're not like the rest of the world. We're not like those people over there. Praise the Lord that we aren't like those sinners out in those street corners, right? Um, and what happens is your holy huddle, see how quickly? Becomes a very unholy huddle. Comes a very unholy huddle uh, where uh, we become filled with pride and, and start to, um, <laughs> this is how you start fighting about completely insignificant things, right? Uh, we're not focused on the loss, so we're going to focus on the color of the carpet. Isn't that a biblical issue? Let's have a church split about that. Um, or, should the worship team contain a mandolin? Right? Um, when I said that in the first service, somebody said, yes. <laughs> it's great. It's like, I don't know if a mandolin is like intrinsically angelic or demonic. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know if the minions or the angels play the mandolin. It's just not a thing we're going to spend time fighting about. We lose our outward focus. We think about the carpet. We think about the worship team. We think about... Um, should the pastor shave? <laughs> you know, the pastor, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The pastor should probably shave. <laughs> but we're not going to fight about it, you know? It's like, this is one of those things, like, uh, you know, I, I have a list, I have a long list of worries, and that ain't on my list, okay? <laughs> but you see how churches do that. You see how churches do that. We start filling our time and our energy and our emotional resources with internal divisions. They create bitterness and, and tension and rivalries. And slowly by slowly, inch by inch, as the members die, the church dies. You survive as long as your uh, longest surviving member. Because you've lost that outward, you've lost the outward face. That's the heartbeat that keeps us young. Now, if that's the case, if, if this outward-facing heartbeat keeps us young and if it's so easy to lose that heartbeat, we are a people who should be really um, grateful, um, humbly grateful here at McLean. Why? Because we have been handed a very young legacy. A very young legacy. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that this church has always been passionate on the, about those who are far from God. This church has always sought to minister in the community, to plant churches in the community, to send missions teams to the nations that others might know the Lord. Uh, those who went before us, many of whom are still in our pews today, don't be confused by the wrinkles. They are young of soul. <laughs> and they have gifted us with a very young legacy, a very young heritage. And so our desire as a church is to walk in that, to walk first, of course, in faithfulness to this great commission that Christ has given us, and then secondly, in continuity with those who have gone before us as a congregation. Which takes us to what this morning is all about, to why we're planting churches, to why we're, we're adding services. I'm going to read the, the scripture for us that you'll find in your, your worship guide, and after I, I do that, David will share some reflections on how we're not just trying to talk a good game, but we're really trying to be an outward-facing church. And then after he has shared, Paul will share some reflections on how we're really not just trying to say the right things, but really trying to plant outward-facing churches. Being an outward-facing church that plants outward-facing churches. Those are our reflections for the morning. But first, Let's read together this section of God's Word. Our theme verse from the book of Proverbs, followed by a section on the book of Corinthians, where Paul reflects upon um, what he is doing to reach those that are far from the Lord, and then close it with a, a verse from the book of Proverbs again. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know the reason our senior pastor is not shaving is because one of you told him he looks like Prince Harry. So... (laughs) If you've ever been in my study, you might have seen that I have a print. It's a print of a painting by Van Gogh. And it's a picture of a church, of a church with no doors. It's a picture of a church that has no light coming out of its windows, nor any light shining on it. It's a painting of a church that has a path that goes around it with one lonely soul walking around the church, paying no attention to it at all. Now, art scholars, now I'm not one, but some art scholars think that it shows how Van Gogh felt towards the church because of his experiences with the church earlier in his life, that it was closed to him. For me, it's a picture of an old church. It's a picture of a dying church. It's a picture of a church that is inward focused but it's also a call it's a reminder to me that that's not what we want our church to be but we want our church to be living we want our church to be young we want our church to be outward facing the question that James is asked is how do we continually be a young church well it goes back to our mission statement what's our mission statement Making disciples who make a difference through grace-filled worship, community, and missions. It means that every disciple, every member, has to be about two things. They have to be filled with grace, and they have to be living on mission. Now, the first of those is this. Each of us in this room that's a member of this church has to be filled with grace. Now, I know this. I know that many of you are filled with grace, but many of you may not be passionate for souls to be one to the gospel. Why? Because if you're like me, then perhaps you've forgotten what it's like to be a brand plucked from the fire. Perhaps you've forgotten what the experience was when you were once saved. Or maybe another reason why, if I look at my own life, Why am I not being filled with grace? Because I'm filled with fear. I'm fearful of people. I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I share the gospel. But I'm also fearful about the gospel. That is it really powerful enough to save someone? 
You see, I'm in relationship with people like you and I'm hoping and praying that they'll come to faith in Christ. But if I'm honest, I'll be pretty shocked and surprised if some of them do. Why? Because I don't think the gospel is that powerful. And do you know what that reveals about myself? It reveals my own arrogance and my own pride that somehow I was easier to save. You see, if the gospel can save me, then it can save anyone. So in order for us to continue to be a young church, we have to be filled with grace. We have to understand that before we live on mission, we were the mission. So the first part for us to maintain an outward face is to be filled with grace. Now the second part is that every one of us in this room have to live on mission. Now, why don't we do that? There are many reasons why, but I think one of the reasons why we don't do that is a lot of times we leave missions to the professionals. That's why we hired Paul. That's why we have David and missions pastors. That's why we have evangelists. But all of us are commanded to go out into the world and to share the gospel. And so all of us in this room have to be living on mission. It's the reason why missions is not just a department. It's not something that only a few of us do, but missions is a part of all of us and all of our ministries. Our children's ministry is on mission. Our student ministry is on mission. Our fellows ministry is on mission. Our home fellowship groups are on mission. All of our worship services are on mission, and all of you are on mission as well. And as you've been on mission, we've grown a lot. If you haven't noticed, since 2012, we've grown by almost 50%. If you felt uncomfortable on Sunday morning, the reason is this facility was designed for around 1,000 people. We have almost twice that amount here. So that's one of the reasons why we keep having to create space in order to reach new people. So what are we doing this fall? We're adding a service at 5.15 so that we can make space for more new people. Now, for some of you, it'll be really convenient. You'll be like, yay, I can sleep in, I can play golf, and then I can come to worship. My family's coming there. For others, it won't be convenient for you. But all of us need to be asking, how am I living on mission so that we can reach more people with the gospel? We're excited about what God is doing here. We're looking forward to this new service. It's going to have similarities and it's going to have differences. But just creating space doesn't mean people are going to come. People are going to come when all of us are living on mission, when we're inviting, involving, and investing ourselves on the mission of God. You see, as disciples, we have to realize it's not if we're called to missions, it's where and how we're called to mission. And so the question for all of us this morning is, will you be young? Will I be young? Will we stay committed to the Great Commission, to multiplying disciples, multiplying churches, and multiplying justice and mercy in our city? Will we bury our talents? Or will we be so committed to the mission of God that God will give us more? You know, I was reflecting on this with one of our elders recently, and it was before I came. This church, like James said, has a heritage of being young. 
And about five or six years ago, your church leadership, your elders said, even though we have so many needs internally, we've got to remain committed to being outward facing. And so they made some radical commitments financially as well as uh, staffing to um, make sure that we were ready to plant churches. And do you know what? After they made that commitment, that's when the growth happened. That's when the resources came. You see, God gave us more because we made a commitment to live on mission. And we're reaffirming that mission today that this church has been doing for 75 years. That all of us should be filled with grace. That all of us should be living on mission. And when we do that, we plant churches that are living on mission. Thank you, David. You know, David and James, if if you guys keep talking like this, you might be surprised to see more and more people excited about mission and doing mission in all kinds of different ways. You might even see five or six dozen MPC members willing to to leave this wonderful church (laughs) to start a new one. I don't know. You just might see that. Uh, So the one day, Jesus and his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, they they went on on a hike, went up a mountain. And when they were there, those four of them alone, uh, Jesus was, it says, transfigured before them. Uh, It says his clothes became dazzling white, you know, whiter than was humanly possible to bleach them. There was, um, and it, it was, what we're supposed to take from that is that they were getting a taste, a little foretaste of Jesus' eternal heavenly glory right before their eyes. They were getting a taste, and that taste was good. That taste, there's something about seeing Jesus' glory that, that's, that touched something in their souls, that nothing in the world had been able to, to touch in that way, that nothing in the world could satisfy. They found Jesus' glory was filling that spot. And they were excited about it. They, they worshipped. And uh, Peter even said, Lord, let's set up uh, the, the right things so that we can be here for a long time. And it just turns out that that wasn't the plan yet. That the time for the disciples to enjoy Jesus' eternal heavenly glory was to come, but that time was not yet. They had other things they had to do first. Jesus, the King of glory, had to go down the hill because there was a cross waiting for for him. And the disciples followed him down the hill, and they had a task as well, just as we do today. To go and to gather more disciples who will thirst and hunger for Christ's heavenly, eternal glory. To long for that, to, to taste it uh, through, uh, you know, through worshiping together and through the word. And just to experience that in their lives, maybe for the first time. And this is our task. This is why we're going down the mountain. You know, I, you might ask, why would anyone, why would five or six dozen people want to leave a church like McLean. In a lot of ways, this is a really good place. Now, I was joking with David and James earlier, and we all agree, yes, there is no perfect church. McLean, of course, is not a perfect church. And yet, McLean is a church where the gospel is preached, where worship is glorifying and engaging. I mean, this morning at the 8.30 service, James probably won't tell on me, but I'm standing next to him. We're singing, Behold Our God. And like, you know, I can barely see anymore. The tears are welling up. And like, my nose is starting to run. At that point where I'm like, I wonder if I can stop this without getting a napkin, without getting a tissue. Can I just like sniff this back up? I mean, it was, um, 
Like, God is here among us as we worship. This is a place where community is deep and sweet, and a place where we really are all on mission. And sometimes when we're on mission, it just makes sense for some of us to go take that mission and focus it in another part of the metro area. And so that's why we're going out this way. So who are we trying to reach, and, and, and why? Who are these people we hope will come? So in John 3 and John 4, we see these two people, just for example. One is this woman, a Samaritan woman, who is, meeting at a, uh, who is going to a well to fetch water. And Jesus was going to go talk to him. See, Jesus was traveling that day, and how you traveled in this area was you never went through Samaria, even though that was the shortest route. You went around Samaria, because the Samaritans... But to the Jews were uh, ethnically uh, inferior. They were morally inferior. They had compromised morally, you know, for hundreds of years. They were just, they were not even worth dealing with. They, Jews especially, would just walk around Samaria to avoid it, even though it took miles longer to go. But Jesus, instead of going that normal route, intentionally went through Samaria because he knew this woman would be there. He came to seek her. And she was not only an outcast because she was a Samaritan, she was an outcast because of her lifestyle. I mean, she was drawing water at the middle of the day, at the hottest time of the day, so that no one else would bump into her. Because she was an outcast from among the outcasts. And one of the first things Jesus did was make sure she had a sense that she could belong with him. That she might be pushed out of every other social circle, But she had a place with him. And you could tell this was unsettling and yet sweet to her soul. And and Jesus spoke tenderly to her and gave her the truth about what, what she was thirsting and longing for. And at the same time did so with love and tenderness. And this transformed her, as we know. You know, this, in some ways, this aspect of belonging uh, before believing is something we see more than once happen in scripture. We see Jesus do this. He goes and dines with sinners and tax collectors. He goes and hangs out with prostitutes. He goes and does these things so that, because belonging often is a part of the coming to belief process. It was for me. You know, I I came to faith when I was 17, but I had been in a a youth ministry, actually a couple different ones, for, for about three or four years before that. As, you know, someone who maybe thought I believed, every, you know, everything, I probably thought that I believed in God, but everyone knew I didn't uh, because of the words I said and, and the way I lived, but they still let me feel like I belonged. And the relationships I made there, some of them I still have today. They were very formative. So we go to reach people like that woman. Go to reach people who can belong, to tell them that they can belong with us. You know, a church that intentionally includes the lost and broken will be a church that will, um, when they include them, they'll be a church that reaches the lost and broken. If you go to include them, if you go pursue them, you will be a church that reaches them. And the churches that go out to reach them will, as they do that, grow in the gospel. And that's what we want to do at King's Cross. You know, there are others uh, that Jesus spoke to as well. There are, um, there was in John chapter 3, we know John 3.16, but sometimes we, we forget the first part of that chapter. A man named Nicodemus, he was really the opposite of a social outcast. 
He was the social elite. He was well respected by his peers, by the whole community. He was a religious leader. He was intelligent. Uh, you might say he was an overachiever. He might fit in well in, in the D.C. area, actually. Uh, and Nicodemus came to Jesus alone. You know, Jesus came to the Samaritan woman alone because she already was. Nicodemus wanted to come to Jesus alone because he was afraid of being seen. And he came in the cover of darkness. And I think he came because it was hard for him to realize that he had so much going for him in his life. And yet he still was missing something. He still knew that he didn't have it all, even though he did have it all by the world's standards. And we want to create a place at King's Cross where where people like that even can come. A safe place where you can bring your doubts without shame, bring your questions without shame. Come and and maybe catch a glimpse of what uh, life, what this eternal glory uh, of Christ, what, what this might actually look like in your life. For them to process that together. You know, so again, as we go and seek intentionally the lost and broken, we will, you know, we'll find ourselves reaching them if we keep doing that. And as we do that, we'll grow in the gospel. It's, it's interesting that, uh, that we need for our spiritual growth to be around those who are lost and broken. Uh, so if you, you know, if, if you're here this morning and you identify maybe as atheist or something, uh, something else, maybe broadly spiritual, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, first of all, we hope you feel welcome. Second of all, we're glad you're here because you're good for our souls. I mean, you're, you're good for us and for our spiritual growth. We need to have you here. So thank you so much for being here. You keep us honest. Uh, you keep us uh, thinking about the right kinds of things. So thank you for being here. So I think finally at... Uh, at, at King's Cross, we want to be that place where you can belong and be loved on your way to believing. Now, I want to close with, with this because uh, I got a card this week from one, of, from one of you, from an MPC member who is coming with us to King's Cross. And, and, and she, this is a great card to get, by the way. These are great things. If you think cards of encouragement uh, are never noticed by your pastors, you're mistaken. Uh, they are, are cherished. They mean so much. So please send them, send them your, their way. Send them to James and David as you sincerely feel them. Send them to Bill and to Robert. Um, it, your, your words of encouragement mean so much. In this letter, uh, she is. This person is is telling me how a conversation with a friend of hers, uh, her friend realized how badly our communities need the Lord, and the person who wrote this felt that too. And said, so, she says, so let's buckle our seatbelts and get ready for an exciting ride watching God at work. Amen to that. We would cherish your prayers. We're sad to leave, uh, but we are excited to be a part of this bigger family. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm compelled by uh, David's description of, of Van Gogh's painting uh, that he has, has hanging in his office. And, and it makes me wonder, how would Van Gogh paint MPC? Would he paint something ingrown? What, what would that look like? Well, you ever had an ingrown toenail? Let's use some words. Oozing, weepy, spiritual pus, 
perhaps. Yeah, visceral, right? <laughs> um, that's the kind of ugliness that, that you see in an ingrown church. Already paint something outward facing. Well, what would that look like? Not, not the toenail, but the city on the hill. Right? That's what Christ describes the church. That, that's, that's the church. The city on the hill is, is the church. It's to be this presence within the city that it shines so beautifully it has a, an alluring and compelling impact on those who are far from God. That's how, that's how we would like for Van Gogh <laughs> to paint us. And by Christ's grace, that can be the picture that we become. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this time of worship this morning where we're reminded that we live life before your face and in your presence and where we're reminded, Lord, that you have given us grace upon grace for salvation and then, Lord, recommissioned us for usefulness uh, in your kingdom here today. So, Lord, would you be pleased, Lord, to, to take these reflections and take these words and multiply them into reality, into uh, walking the walk, not just talking the talk. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.